The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Well, many, many years ago, when I was a freshman in college, I was living and going to college in downtown Chicago, and I woke up one Sunday morning to a very strange sound. It wasn't the sound of sirens or police cars. I was very used to that sound. If you've ever lived in an urban area, you get used to that real quick. It wasn't the sound of gunshots. I know you watch the news. That's all you think happens in Chicago is guns flying everywhere. It's not true, right? But it, it wasn't that. I, I woke up and I was like, what is that? And I was like, listen, I was like, that's people cheering. Like, what, what is going on? It was like 7.30 on a Sunday morning. And I was up my dorm. I lived on the ninth floor of a 20-story building. And I looked and I opened the blinds and looked out. And I didn't realize this until it was happening. But the Chicago Marathon literally ran right next door to my dorm room. And there were 45,000 runners running right by where I lived. And I was like, well, this looks cool. So I grab a jacket on and I run outside and I start watching them. There's all sorts of energy. And this was like mile four in the race. Everyone's looking good and they got smiles on their faces. And then my like ultra competitive self, I'm standing there watching everyone. And I'm like, I think I could do that. I hate the way I'm wired sometimes, right? So what happens a couple years later? I sign up for the Chicago Marathon. Now, my background in running was in the sports I played. It was the punishment right? Like you ran when you missed the shot or you failed at it, right? So I don't have a background in running. I didn't particularly enjoy running. I just thought it looked cool and I wanted to do it. Suddenly I had to realize real quick that in order to meet this challenge of running a marathon, it was going to require a lot of perseverance through pain for me. I remember the first run that I did where it was 10 miles. And I was like, that just seemed like in my head, like people could actually do that. Like, what are you talking, like, people actually run 10 miles? It was, like, mind-blowing to me. And then I'm like, and that's not even halfway of where I have to get to, right? But, but it, it was something that I had to realize and had to push myself through because to get to where I needed to go, it required perseverance through certain challenges to build that endurance. And this church that we're going to look at this morning, we're in our second week of a series in Revelation chapter two and three. The church that we're looking at this morning needed to build this endurance and perseverance as well through the obstacles that they were facing. That God had an outcome, a goal for them, but for them it required and will require a lot of challenges and they needed to overcome the challenges that they we're facing. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 2. If you're new to the church, Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. So if you want to follow along in a Bible or in a Bible app, um, feel free to go right to the very end, Revelation chapter 2. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second church here in these seven churches, the shortest passage, I believe, that we'll have, the church in Smyrna. Starting at verse 8, says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt 
by the second death. Well, if you were here last week as we kicked off this series, there's very much similarities in each of these short sermons, if you would, to these seven churches. And so we'll kind of each week walk through and notice some of the similarities and some of the uniquenesses of each of these passages as we walk through each of these together one a week. The first thing that each passage has is the Christ title. What does Jesus identify himself as? And we see this in verse eight. It's two things here in this church to Smyrna. First, that he identifies himself as the first and the last. And then secondly, is them who died and came to life. First and the last has both cultural and biblical implications on why Jesus picks this title to talk of himself. First, Smyrna was a very proud city and was known, had a reputation. The nickname of Smyrna was the first city of Asia. It was very prominent and well-known. They call them, we're the first city. We are first, we are prominent. And it's no accident that Jesus identifies himself as the first. Not just the first city, but the true superiority, the first and the last. It also has biblical connotations where Jesus is pulling this. This is not the first time in the Bible that this title is used of God. He's pulling it actually from the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah, it's, it comes in a few places. Isaiah chapter 44 says this, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. In Isaiah chapter 48, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. By Jesus identifying himself with this, what he's saying is he is one with God. This God who we see here as Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus says, that is me as well. And this is especially pertinent because as you see, the main, the main pros- or persecution, excuse me, that the Christians were undergoing suffering from was instigated by who? Was by those who were Jews. And the Jews would say, well, no, God of the Old Testament is the God. And and he's saying, yes, Jesus, but I am the Messiah. I am not just the one who's come, but I am that God as well. I am fully, fully God. And so he identifies himself as fully God. Not only that, but him who died and came to life. To a persecuted church that was undergoing hardship and it was only going to get worse, Jesus identifies with their suffering. He's saying, hey, some of you maybe will have to suffer even to the point of death, but I'm the one who suffered to the point of death, but who also came back to life. In chapter one, when when Jesus identifies himself, he says that I am the one who died, behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. He's reminding them that yes, he is the one like them who had to suffer, but he has victory over death. And it gives them confidence in the face of what they have to face that yes, he too suffered, but he died and overcame it and has life. And and we too can have life because Jesus is the one who died, but also came to life. So that's the title that Jesus gives himself. Secondly, we have the commendation. What, What is this church doing well? And we see this here in verse nine, when it says, I know, I know your tribulation. I know the affliction, the suffering, the persecution that you are undergoing. And it's seen in two expressions. How is this suffering seen amongst this church in Smyrna? First, it's your poverty. 
your poverty. This is likely due to the fact, historians tell us, that in a prominent town like Smyrna, and Smyrna was known as well for being one of the very first centers of Rome worship in the ancient world, that Rome was held in very high esteem. And so to be entrance into many of the guilds that would then have financial gain in the, in the city of Smyrna would be pagan rituals, including swearing allegiance to Rome, as well as part of admittance into these things. And so the Christians were faced with this dilemma do I, for my own financial gain, become a part of this, but then have to swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord? Or do I instead inflict poverty on my family out of loyalty and allegiance to Christ? And he's saying, you have chosen rather to be poor, but not to deny me. That you could have, and it would have been very easy for you to set aside and say, oh yeah, I'm just going to say that. But they said, no, no, we will even undergo financial ruin for the sake of Jesus. That they're experiencing poverty, but he says, but you are rich. They may be poor in this life, but they've experienced spiritual wealth. They are rich in Christ because of this decision that they have made not to compromise. So not only is this church experiencing poverty, but it's experiencing slander. There's slander as well. And this is probably twofold. First, just general bad mouthing of those who are following after Jesus and, and, and knocking them down, which we still see today. Christianity is often slandered in our world still. But not only that, but it's a specific, it's a systematic denunciation of Christians in the face of persecution. And the ones who were doing this, who were trying to get Christians arrested and persecuted severely were none other than those who say that they are Jews. There in verse nine. They say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this verse in this chapter here is not being anti-Semitic. It's not saying that this is like, oh, all the Jewish people are bad. But what he's saying is he's, he's harping back to what Paul wrote in the book of Romans on who the people of God truly are. In Romans chapter two, it says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. He's saying is these people call themselves the people of God, but they are not. Because theirs is only a physical, they actually haven't experienced this new birth in Jesus. Their hearts haven't been changed by God. And so they actually are not the people of God, but instead they're a synagogue of the evil one, of Satan himself. And so he commends them for, for, for perseverance through their poverty and through the slander that this church is coming under, this tribulation they are in. The third thing that we have to the churches in Revelation is the complaint. What does Jesus find wrong with them? Well, to the church in Smyrna, nothing. There's no complaint. And if you were here last week to see how sharp his complaint was to the church in Ephesus, this stands in stark contrast to most of the, the many messages that John gives here, that Jesus gives through John, is that there is no complaint to this church. So the fourth element we can move on is the correction, or in this case, it's more an encouragement because it's not correcting bad behavior, but it's an encouragement in this behavior that they already are living in. And so what is the encouragement that he gives them? Verse 10, don't fear what you are about to suffer. He says, don't fear because soon some of you may be thrown into prison and be tested. Now, their concept of being thrown into prison and ours is very different. For us in our day, when we often think of prison, we think of prison being the punishment, 
right? Like you're a criminal is arrested for something, they're tried and it's a five-year sentence, a 10-year if it's really bad. It's a lifetime sentence in prison. Prison is the sentencing. In ancient culture, prison was the holding block until you were sentenced and almost always the sentencing was death. They didn't have prisons to hold people for five, 10, 15 years to hold them for life. And so when it means that you will be held in prison, what it means is you're gonna be held in prison and you're probably gonna die soon. Prison was just meaning death is soon coming. It didn't mean just that you're separated from your family for a long time. It means that you will most likely die for this. He's saying that some of you will be thrown into prison, possibly facing death. But he says, be for 10 days, you will have this affliction. Now, like most of the numbers in Revelation 10 here is probably a figurative term, just talking about it will be a short period of time. This persecution, this affliction on your church will be short. And he most likely in this church in Smyrna would certainly have known this story, harking back to them when this period of 10 days, the story of a prophet from many, many years ago who like this church in Smyrna also found themselves suffering in an ungodly place. He's referencing back here to the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter one, he finds himself in a pagan culture and he's told to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Daniel says, no, I will not. And for how many days does he eat something different? It highlights it three times. He, stat- he eats something different for 10 days. It tells us three times. It was 10 days that Daniel did this. And ultimately he was vindicated by God because he took this stand. What he is saying here is just like Daniel withstood this short time for me and was vindicated so you will persevere through this short period of persecution. And like Daniel, you will be vindicated for following after me. The fifth element that we see in each of these passages are the consequences. What happens? In most of them, there's a negative and a positive. But here, because there's been no complaints, that's only two positive consequences. What happens if they persevere as God is calling them to? First, in verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, for the people in Smyrna, they would not have thought of a crown as something royal, made of gold, as we so often would think of a crown. But a crown was something that the winner of an athletic achievement was given. It was well-known amongst their athletics there. Smyrna had many large arenas, and the winners of the competition would receive a crown as indications of their victory. We actually saw this several years ago in the Olympics that were held just a few hundred miles from Smyrna, right across the ocean there in Greece. And in the award ceremony in Athens, Greece, in the Olympics, I think we have a picture of it here, what was given to each of the medalists? A crown. But it was a crown made of leaves. That's what what they were thinking of, which is why so often in the Bible, you notice when it talks about the crown, it's the crown of life. It won't die. It's an unfading crown, whereas this crown would quickly fade. The crown of life, the crown that we have in victory in God is not something that will fade, but will be permanent for us if we persevere. So he takes this well-known image of athletic victory and says, this will be yours forever if you are faithful even until death. The next consequence is there at the end, the one who conquers, that's a word that occurs every passage, one who conquers, who overcomes, who has victory, will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Well, we see this later on in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 20 and 21. The second death is where those who are separated from Christ spend eternity. It's the final destination of the wicked is the second death. 
And what he's saying is you may be killed in this life, but you won't in the next. You will be protected in the next one if you stand for me and are faithful in what I call you to. Even if it costs you your life, you will be saved from this second death that is to come. So what can we learn from this this message to this church from 2,000 years ago to apply and to encourage us today? Three keys today, three keys to faithfulness in the midst of persecution and hardship. First is this, is take comfort in Jesus's sovereignty. That we can take comfort in Jesus's sovereignty, that God is in control. Jesus is seen here as sovereign over all things. He's the first and the last. He's eternal. He's God overall. He's dead and has come to life. He knows their tribulation. He's not unaware of it. Put yourself in the church in Smyrna's shoes. It's so hard for us because we are so comfortable in our culture being Christians. We're not scared of what's going to be outside the doors when we leave. But the church in Smyrna, they were scared for their lives as Christians. And it's very easy, I'm sure I would have been like this, very easy for if you're a Christian in Smyrna to be like, has God forgotten us? Like, what's how how is this part of Jesus's plan for me? That my life is at stake every single day simply for following after him. Has God forgotten us? And Jesus says, no, I know you. I see where you're at. I'm the one who conquered death and has brought you to life. I'm the first and the last. See, hardship in our lives does not negate God's plan for our lives, nor does it take away God's presence from our lives. See, if we think that following Jesus means we don't have hardship in our lives, what we're actually doing is reflecting American values into our lives, not biblical values. And so often we wanna read our culture and our preferences into what the Bible says, but the Bible speaks very clearly about what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they killed him, they will also persecute you. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some of you are like, I came to church for some encouragement today. Thanks a lot. Like, wow. I wish I could get up here and be like, hey, you know what? If you believe in this, all your problems will go away. Cancer will get everybody else. It won't touch you. Financial ruin will come to everybody else, but if you follow Jesus, oh, he'll just bless you. You'll have so much money, you won't know what to do. But that's just simply not true. And we cannot expect that to be the case. So what is it that we have to hold on to in hardship? It's who Jesus is. It's he reminds himself, I'm, I'm eternal. I'm the one who has overcome death and life. And I know you, I see you. See, we may not know. In fact, we very rarely know the reasons behind the hardships we're facing. When struggle, when pain, when persecution and challenge comes into your life, very, very rarely we're like, oh, I see exactly what God is doing here. This makes total sense, right? Most of the time we're like, why is this happening? It doesn't make sense. We have this very short, limited perspective We may not know the reason that hardship is having in our lives. So who does? It's Jesus. 
And we can take comfort in the fact that we may not understand our difficulty. We may not understand why it's happening to us, but there is one who, do, who does, and his name is Jesus. Now, I have a, a newborn at home. Our youngest daughter, Emily, is about six weeks old right now. And so I get to practice with her. I try to at least every day, one of her favorite activities, not really, and it's called tummy time. That's where you take this cute kid who, the babies are so cute, but they're so oddly proportional, right? Like when she sticks her hands all the way up, they only go to like here. Like, can you imagine if her head stayed that big for our whole lives? Right? And so that head is big and heavy. And I'm like, hey, you got to learn to hold this head up. But so what do I do? I stick her on the ground. And when you stick her on the ground, she's fine at first. And then she's like, oh, this thing's heavy. And she starts grunting. She gets this look on her face and she'll like look me in the eye and like, dad, what are you doing here? This hurts. And she'll start fussing and crying and be like, what, what is going on? Just, and, and eventually my heart's broken. So I pick her up and I hold her, right? But I can just imagine in her little six, six week old mind, she's like, I don't need to do this. I just need you to hold my little head up forever. I don't need to go through this pain and suffering. What, is, what do I know that this little girl can't understand right now is that that hardship, that struggle for her is helping her in the long run. I see where it's taking, that it's allowing her to build and grow and support herself. And so then I do it anyways. See, we may not see in our moment of pain and struggle, we don't see the picture that God has for our lives, 5, 10, 15, 25, 40 years down the line. We have no idea what God is doing in our lives or the future he has for us but Jesus does. And he knows exactly how the struggle, the challenge that you're going through right now will equip you for what he has for you in the future. And he knows that if you don't walk through it right now, you won't be ready for what he has for you. See, in our hardship, we can take comfort that Jesus is sovereign, that he's in control, and we may not see the plan for our lives, but he does. And we can take comfort in that. The second key to faithfulness in the midst of persecution is to be confident of your eternal destiny. Be confident of your eternal destiny. There is such irony here to this passage um, that Jesus has to this church in Smyrna. Don't you sometimes wish that like you could write the Bible? Because I would certainly make it say different things. Right, like verse 10, I, if, if I wrote verse 10, I would like put a Bob Marley lyric in there. Like, don't worry about a thing. Every little thing's gonna be all right, church and smart. Don't worry. What does Jesus say? Don't fear anything. It's all gonna get worse. Right, and they're like, what, what, what is that? Right, literally, don't fear what's about to happen. You're gonna be thrown in prison and some of you are gonna die. Right? Like that's not normally the encouragement that we think of when, when, when the message comes to us. But see, the only way to face suffering and hardship without fear is to know our ultimate and eternal future. The only way that, that this church could stare death, imprisonment, and who knows what else in the face is if they knew where the eternal security of their souls lie. And knowing the outcome Knowing the future of something determines how we should live in the present. Knowing where our soul rests, that it's in Jesus alone, should shape how we withstand the persecution and the suffering of the present day realities. Now, I am a huge sports fan. And one of the most nervous 
nerve-wracking sports moments of my life was in the World Series of 2016. Now, I'm not a huge baseball fan. Like, I I enjoy watching it, but I'm not a huge fan. I don't have a team. But at the time, I had lived in Chicago for almost 15 years. And more importantly, I had married into a family for generations that had lived and cheered for the Cubs living on the north side of Chicago. They had literally over a century of disappointment, (laughs) right? Like, and suddenly in 2016, they got good. And suddenly they made it to the playoffs. They beat the Dodgers to get there too. So Giants fans should be happy about that, right? Like they got to the World Series. Then they were down 3-1, but they came back, forced a game seven. And I remember exactly where I was watching game seven. I don't have any investment in this team, but I know so much of the people I love do. Man, I'm so nervous watching this. They, they get ahead. Oh yeah, they're, they're up big, but suddenly the other team starts coming back. They tie it up in the eighth inning. Ninth inning comes, no one scores. About to go to extra inning, rain comes in, rain delay. You're like, what is happening? They come out, Cubs score a couple runs, win the World Series. Man, my palms are getting sweaty just thinking about it. It was so exciting. Now, I lived in Chicago for several years after that happened. And so what would they play all the time on TV in Chicago? Like, here's game seven of the World Series. Kick back and enjoy. Now, my experiencing watching the replays of it were so different than watching it live. Why? Because I knew the outcome. I'm like, hey, it's gonna look, it's gonna look really good, then it's gonna look really bad and get kind of scary, but it's all gonna work out in the end. And I can just sit back and be confident and enjoy and watch it. And I don't have to be scared because I know what's gonna happen. See, in Jesus, we don't have to be scared of the future because we know what's going to happen. As followers of Jesus, we're not like, well, maybe Jesus will work it out. Maybe he'll have victory. No, Jesus is the one who's the first and the last, the one who overcome death and brings us life. We're like, no, I know where my soul stands. I know eternity. I know where my heart dwells. And that gives us confidence in the present. See, Jesus holds the keys to death and life. All who trust in him will be saved. And you can be confident of your eternal destiny to help you through the challenges of whatever you are facing today. And if you're someone who's here this morning and you don't know your eternal destiny and you're caught in the midst of suffering and hardship, man, sometimes I look at the suffering and pain that some people go through and I have not undergone too much in my life, but I've walked alongside others who have. And I'm like, I don't know how some people do it without Jesus. Like, and you don't have to. If you're trying to do it on your own, you're not gonna get there. And Jesus offers himself to you. All you have to do is believe. And this confidence, this assurance, this hope, this peace today can be yours because of what Jesus has done for us, for what Jesus has done for you, for what Jesus has done for me. And so he tells this church in Smyrna and he tells us, know your eternal destiny and be confident in how you can live today. You don't have to live in fear when our future is in Jesus's hands. The third key to faithfulness is this, value faithfulness over life itself. Value faithfulness, value Jesus so much that you even value it over life itself. Now this little sermon here to Smyrna and even this point itself seems so drastic to us because let's be honest, this is so outside of our normal realm of thinking. Most of American Christianity is kind of like, hey, listen, I just want Jesus and eternity. And I just want to kind of add that on to my life and go and live however I want. 
And that's kind of our view of Christianity. And our lack of suffering in the American church has often led to such a shallow faith in so many of us. And let's be, let's be real, faithfulness and the call to faithfulness in the midst of challenges, it's not a very popular message, right? Like that, that doesn't sell. That's not a really popular thing. Like what, what sells? What's an easier sell? Well, power sells a lot more than faithfulness and suffering does, right? Which is why so many people that call themselves Christians today are just trying to take parts of the Bible, parts of their political agenda and ideology and mesh it together and be like, oh, look, this is good. And we're going to take over the country, no matter what side you're on. Why? Because they're after power. They're not after faithfulness to God and to his word. You know, I was a youth pastor for 13 years. And one of the the fun things about being a youth pastor is, especially for older elementary and and junior high age kids, is when you sit down with them, you have no idea the questions they're going to ask, right? It's just like, it's so random and it's so fun because it's it's always fresh. It's never boring. You have no idea what they're going to ask. And I remember there was a question that was asked to me a few different times that I I kind of answered a few different ways. So I read more about it. And the question is this, is is sometimes kids would ask me, hey, hey, Pastor Michael, would you die for being a Christian? Would you die for your faith? And I was kind of like, that's never going to happen. Like, whatever, you know, I was kind of like, would joke around and, and answer, well, yeah, of course I would. I'm a pastor. But, you know, didn't, didn't really think much of it. Until years later, I read a book by a theologian. And, and she said this, talking about why kids ask this question to adults. And she said this, the reason kids ask adults, would you die for your faith is this. Because the kids, they're thinking, well, if it's not worth dying for, it's not worth living for. And if this, if this thing that you're calling me to isn't worth dying for, why would I give my life this? What they're asking is, is Christianity, is Jesus worth it? Is he actually worth following with my life? Because think about it, what are you willing to die for? The things you're willing to die for show the value that it has in your life. You're only willing to die for very few things and they're of the utmost value, right? Like I'm a cyclist, I love my bikes, but if I'm out for a ride this afternoon and someone comes up, pulls a gun on me and it's like, hey, I'm gonna kill you or give me your bike. I'm like, here, take this. You want my other one at home? Like, take my bikes, I'm good. Like, I love the house that we live in, but if someone's like, I'm gonna kill you if you don't give me your house, I'm like, here, come on, move in. Here's both sets of keys, I'm out of here. Like, I love being the pastor at this church. I absolutely love being here and the people I get to work with in the church, I love it. But if someone's like, I'm gonna kill you if you don't quit, I'm like, all right, I'll find another church to work at. I'm good. What would I actually die for in my life? It's my wife and my two girls. And that's, that's about it. Why? Because that's my greatest values in life. And this seems so drastic for us, but it's the measure of faithfulness. It's the measure of our value of God. Do we love Jesus so much that we're willing to give up anything for him? This church is asked this question. Do you love Jesus so much that you would die for him? One of the members of the church in Smyrna who would have received and been alive at this time that this book was written was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was born in 69 AD. Church fathers say that he was discipled by the apostle John. Yes, this John who wrote this book, he was discipled by him himself. And later on in his life was the Bishop of Smyrna, the leader of the church in Smyrna for many years. Fast forward to many years later in the year 156, persecution had arisen in Smyrna. And they were looking for believers to make an example of. 
And because of that, some of his congregation moved Polycarp to a farmhouse outside of town, but his location was found and soldiers came out to arrest him and bring him to trial. They showed up to this farmhouse. He invited them in, cooked them a meal, fed them, gave them drink, and then prayed for two hours before they took him. The story tells us that along the way, the police captain came up to Polycarp and said, hey, just swear that the, that the Lord is Caesar and it will all be good. And Polycarp said, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. And so he goes to the trial. The Roman proconsul says, swear by the spirit or the genius of Caesar, take this oath and I will let you go revile Christ. To which Polycarp responded, for 80 and six years have I been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul pleaded with him, swear by the genius of Caesar. Polycarp said, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you are ignorant of who I am, listen plainly, I am a Christian. He was threatened to be thrown into with wild beasts. He was threatened to be burned at the stake to which he replied, you threaten with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched for you do not know the fire which awakes the wicked in the judgment to come and an everlasting judgment. By the history tells us that the ones leading the charges and the ones who gathering the wood were actually the Jews who were living in Smyrna, just as this passage tells us. They led him to a stake, but he said, don't nail it to me for Jesus will give me the strength to stay there. So they simply bound, it to, bound him to it. During his final prayers, he was bound and about to be lit on fire. Polycarp said this, I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and hour that I may share among the number of martyrs in the cup of my Christ for the resurrection to everlasting life, both of soul and body in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. The fire was then lit underneath him. But a strange thing happened, historians say, that, that his body actually wasn't consumed. The wind blew, so the fire actually didn't hit him. So a soldier ran up as Polycarp was tied up there, stabbed him, and he bled out. And the story says that he bled so much as he died that actually extinguished the fire that was lit underneath him. The first martyr for Jesus outside of the New Testament that we know of in Christian history was someone in Smyrna. It was Polycarp. He's the very first that we know of. Many hundreds and thousands of more have come after him. But I don't think it's any accident that he's the first that we know of. That he took these words seriously, to be faithful even to death. And he would achieve the crown of life. Now, I don't know what the future will look like, what it will look like to follow Jesus in the future here and in the Bay Area or wherever you find yourself living. But I do know this, it's a lot different following Jesus now than it was 30 years ago. It's a lot harder to follow Jesus now than it was 15 years ago. I don't know what it'll look like another 15 years. I don't know what 30 years will look like. I don't know the pressures I don't know the persecution. I don't know the sufferings that you and I may be called to as followers of Jesus to represent and to live for him. But my prayer for myself, for this church, for you is this, that wherever we find ourselves, that we would be faithful. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever persecution, whatever challenges that we find ourselves with, that we would be faithful. That we would, as this church is called to, as our church is called to, that we would value Jesus over everything. That we would value Jesus 
over even life itself. God, we thank you that you are the God who holds life and death in your hands. You defeated death and you comfort us knowing that you are sovereign over all things and you can use pain and suffering that we could never make sense of into your plan for our lives. God, would we have that courage in whatever obstacle we find ourselves with right now and with whatever the future may have in store for our lives, God, would we remain faithful to you? Would we value you amongst any of the pleasures, the things that this world could ever offer us? Would we value you over even life itself? Because you are worth it. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.